When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. All right, everyone, welcome back to Monopolies Killed My Hometown. And so last episode, I looked at the introduction from the Royal Commission on Price Spreads about their investigation into industry, starting on page 46 of the report. And today, I'm going to look at the first industry that they really investigated, tobacco. It's kind of shocking. Like, I forget how big and important the tobacco industry actually was. And I think I see this because there's been such a push away from smoking in the last 20 years or so. Like, I remember when I was growing up, you go into a restaurant and the, the mater d' or the server would say smoking or non-smoking, even though the sections were right next to each other. You know, and I remember going out either to like bars or clubs or whatever in Halifax in the early 2000s and coming home just having a shower or just washing everything because they stunk so bad from all the cigarettes. You know, it was so much nicer and so much more pleasant to go out after they banned smoking in bars and restaurants. So much nicer. Something else that I always think about with tobacco, this is also for people who think that the government can't act. When I was a kid, they banned cigarette advertising or tobacco advertising on Formula One race cars because they were worried about it promoting smoking with kids. Like, I think back and I go, I can't think of anybody who started smoking because they saw, you know, a Marlboro ad on Jacques Villeneuve's race car. The long and short of that is I'm glad the tobacco industry isn't as big today as it was in the 1930s. I also would skip this industry because I don't really want to talk too much about tobacco, but I think there is a lot we can learn from the discussion in the investigation that the Price Spreads Commission had on the tobacco industry. Because to quote the very first paragraph of their report, the tobacco industry provides a good example of an industry which is dominated by a single unit. In this case, the Imperial Tobacco Company of Canada Limited accounts for at least 70% of the production of tobacco. So here we have an industry that is obviously dominated by one large company. And the commission found that the Imperial Tobacco Company uses this to their advantage at the expenses of others. Again, to quote the committee, The position of the grower has been far from satisfactory, with prices for the raw leaf subject to fluctuations in a market in which... Up until 1934, the trend had been generally downward. On the other hand, one highly organized company has been in the position to manipulate raw material costs and to sell its product in a sheltered market. The smaller companies have experienced great difficulty in securing and holding an outlet for their goods and in maintaining financial solvency. So we have the Imperial Tobacco Company with 70% of the production and to quote the commission again, by virtue of its size alone, dominates all branches of trade. And the commission goes on to say, Size alone is not the only indication of the dominating position of the Imperial Tobacco Company of Canada. The policy of the company towards the producer, the competitor, and the retailer provides even better evidence. So looking back, the commission found that the Imperial Tobacco Company of Canada was doing essentially two things. First, they were using their size and strength to maintain their volumes. And second, using their dominance to maintain the prices on their increased volumes. 
through a system of retail price maintenance. Let's get into what does that actually mean. And then I want to look at, could this be happening again today? Not necessarily in tobacco, but in other industries. So how did the Imperial Tobacco Company maintain their prices? Commission found is pretty straightforward, threats and bullying. So the Imperial Tobacco Company, I'm going to shorten it to ITC, created a price list that most retailers and wholesalers were okay with. But then if a retailer or wholesaler cut prices or offered discounts on their product, the ITC just cut them off their list and stopped providing them products. And so this is one of the most beautiful lines in the whole report from the commission. So they summarized the impact as, when a company which produces nearly three quarters of the supply refuses to sell to a wholesaler or retailers, the effect on that dealer is too obvious to comment. I love this line because in the 1930s, the commission knew that Canadians understood market power. Basically, the small retailer or wholesaler had no choice but to do what the ITC wanted them to do. Back then, you know, we understood these power dynamics. Instead, today, I think in these situations, economist comes in that argues, um, actually, I have a model that shows this is efficient for the economy. Or there'd be someone else who would have a calculation that shows that, nope, this is all good. But when we look back at this report, basically, it's showing the Imperial Tobacco Company was basically bullying people. That's how they were getting ahead and staying ahead. The Imperial Tobacco Company also had a twist on this policy as well. So they had a retailer sign a contract that the commission described this contract as being so one-sided that the commission was shocked. And so this agreement said that not only would the retailers maintain the prices that the Imperial Tobacco Company set, they would also maintain competitors' prices at the same levels. So basically, ITC created a system that prevented their competitors from competing with them on price. So they used their power to keep all tobacco prices high. And again, if the retailers didn't sign this agreement, they were cut off. And to quote the commission, the effect of being cut off is too obvious to comment. Through the Imperial Tobacco Company's favors, they maintained a high price of tobacco. And so to maintain their volume, they used a few other bullying tactics. First, they sold to some retailers for a 10% discount from the wholesalers. And so this preferential supplier list basically guaranteed that retailer an extra 10% profit because they couldn't pass this 10% savings on to the customers, right? Because of the above agreement. They did pass on that 10%, then they were cut off from the Imperial Tobacco Company's products. But it was somewhat secretive on how you actually would get onto this list. So some evidence was given to the commission that to get on this preferential seller's list, the ITC looked at, you know, merchandising ability, size of the community served, class of establishment, advertising possibilities, and financial responsibility. So basically, the largest chain stores and mass buyers. Other people claimed, and the Imperial Tobacco Company denied, that the real way to get on the list was to give the Imperial Tobacco Company a more prominent position of merchandising than other competitors. So basically, you gave them more prominent display of their products for a price break. And so the commission concluded that a preferential sales list like this could be used as a weapon against smaller competitors and retailers. And, you know, the competitors and retailers claimed that the Imperial Tobacco Company did this. Imperial Tobacco Company claimed they didn't. So, who should we believe? I believe the competitors and retailers, by the way. This was another fantastic line from the commission that stood out. They were interviewing the president of a competitor of the Imperial Tobacco Company. This is the quote from the article. A president of one of the Imperial Tobacco Company's competitors said to the effect that human nature and business being what they are, it was difficult to avoid such abusive practices and that he might be guilty of them himself 
If only his company were as strong as the Imperial Tobacco Company. So basically he's saying, I you know, I can't really blame the guy for doing what he's doing. I probably would do it too if I was, you know, if I had that much power of the industry. And that quote really summarizes my belief about a lot of these abusive behaviors and why I'm really looking back at this report. Because I don't believe business people and people in general have changed that much. If a business person can use their power to get ahead, they probably will. I also believe that a lot of the, you know, abusive tactics that were used in the 1930s are the same ones that are again being used today. You know, there may be a new couple, but I think essentially they're all the same. And when reading this, I started thinking about, okay, if this is what the Imperial Tobacco Company was doing in the 30s, is anybody doing something similar today? And I came to Amazon. And I think that if we found that the Imperial Tobacco Company's abusive practices put small retailers and small tobacco producers out of business in the 1930s, to me, it stands to reason that similar practices would do the same today. Because when you look back, the ITC had 70% of the tobacco market share. So in 2021, Amazon was the fifth largest retailer by volume in Canada, behind Loblaws, the Westons, Costco, Empire, and Walmart. So Amazon is a big player by volume, but an even bigger player for online search for products. A U.S. stat from 2022 is that 61% of purchasers start their search for a product on Amazon. At that high of a rate, a retailer has to be on Amazon. If you're not there, the person searching is going to find another product that meets their needs before they move on. They're probably going to find what they want on Amazon and not bother searching anywhere else. And so that's my assessment of the situation. And again, to paraphrase the commission, the effect for retailers of not being on Amazon or being kicked off Amazon is too obvious to comment. But it's not just listing on Amazon. To be successful, you need to be on the first page of the search results or have the buy box when you search for an item. This information came out in the Washington, D.C. Attorney General's lawsuit of Amazon from 2021. So to have access to the buy box, you have to ship to Amazon Prime members. But to ship to Amazon Prime members, you have to use Fulfilled by Amazon. So the Institute for Local Self-Reliance found that in December 2021, Amazon was taking 34% of all sales as fees for the Fulfilled by Amazon service. Whereas in 2024, it was 19%. And I'd, I'd guess that the cost has gone up even more since 2021. Now with this, retailers do get benefits from using Amazon and Fulfilled by Amazon. However, the retailers don't really have a choice in using it. Because again, once a business has a dominant position, like the witness from before, it's difficult to avoid such abusive practices. And so what are some of the things that Amazon is doing that has been found out? First, they have a fair price agreement, which is that any product sold on Amazon cannot be sold for less on another website or somewhere else. So this is like the price agreements that the Imperial Tobacco Company forced on wholesalers and retailers for tobacco. If the Imperial Tobacco Company found somebody selling their tobacco products for less, they cut you off the list. And if Amazon finds you selling less somewhere else, you get cut off the Amazon list. And again, to quote the commission, the effect of this is too obvious to comment. Not to mention that this also raises prices for all of us. Amazon has also done other sketchy things. Underpricing diapers.com until they weren't solvent, then Amazon bought the company. You know, and this is similar to a story from the commission of a small cigar manufacturer that said that the Imperial Tobacco Company threatened to open a competing cigar manufacturing plant in their area if they didn't sell to the tobacco company. That's a threat. So that threat from the Imperial Tobacco Company is similar to what Amazon did to diapers.com. You know, Amazon has been caught copying successful products and selling them under the Amazon Basics product lines. And again, Amazon execs, just like the Imperial Tobacco Company executives, deny knowing anything about this happening. 
I also think Amazon is maintaining a similar preferential sellers list. Not exactly in the same way as the Imperial Tobacco Company did, but Amazon is now in the advertising business in a major way. So looking back, the Imperial Tobacco Company gave preferential terms, 10% off, to businesses that would display their products prominently. Amazon is giving preferential product placement to businesses who pay for ads. Right, so in 2021, Amazon had 32 billion in ad revenue in the US, only behind Google and Facebook. And so some of the ad sales would be from Twitch or Amazon Music or Prime Video or other places that they own, but a lot is still on Amazon or Amazon Marketplace. In the third quarter of 2022, 58% of all ad sales were from third-party sellers. So this is people that are already listing their products for sale on Amazon. Now they're buying ads against certain keywords, probably centered around what their product is, right? And so I noticed this, I think probably two years ago, I was shopping for an iPad and I searched on Amazon and I got a sponsored ad for an iPad. And I thought, why does Apple need to advertise their iPad on Amazon when I searched for Apple iPad? When I search for Apple iPad on Amazon, I want to see Apple iPads. I don't want to see anything else. And I don't know why Apple would need to pay to have a sponsored ad for their product in this case. That always stuck with me. I went on Amazon yesterday or the day before and I searched for laundry detergent pods just to see what was going to happen. And everything I see on the first page is an ad. I have to scroll to the second page just to see any product listed that aren't ads. But there's still products by the same companies that bought the ads. You know, and as I scroll down, there's another ad on the left side of the screen. Looks like the highly rated suggestions are also sponsored. Like, I just can't seem to get more than a half a page on Amazon now without finding an ad somewhere. It just seems like to be successful now, you have to buy advertising on Amazon. And let's get back to the need for retailers to be on Amazon. Because remember, they have 60% of all searches start there, so you need to be there. And you want to be at the top of the search, so you have to use the fulfilled by Amazon services. But now it looks like you have to also advertise to get near the top of any of the search results. Like I said, that last article was filled by Amazon services was costing about 39%. I found a recode article by Jason Del Rey that says successful Amazon sellers now have to spend 10 to 20% of their revenue on Amazon ads. If we add those two costs together, we have Amazon taking somewhere between 49 and 59% of all sales in fees. That means out of the last 41 to 51%, the business has to pay for the product and then all the other expenses that come from running a business. Salaries, overhead, research and development, all of those sorts of things. And so with Amazon taking 49 to 59% of all sales, the only way for a company to be successful is to raise their prices or to turn around and force price concessions from their suppliers. And because of the favored pricing policy from Amazon, people can't sell their products cheaper somewhere else or they're cut off. So to me, this is just a prime example of market power. And I just, I look at this and I say, you know, what chance does a small business have in this sort of situation? We keep saying, you know, small businesses and local retailers should get online. And then we're putting them in a situation where they need to sell on Amazon, but then they're almost being exploited, having to pay 50% or more of their sales and fees if they want to actually have a chance of being successful. How can a local retailer be successful? And really, what is the chance that we can rebuild our local retail scene in a market dominated by one player like this? And so I think that we need to do something about Amazon to give us a hope of rebuilding our small businesses and our local retail scenes. And that's where competition policy, antitrust policy, that's where this comes into play. This is how we enforce rules and that we ensure markets are fair. 
and we need to use these policies to make sure that small retailers aren't being exploited by Amazon, that it's fair that everybody has access to a market like this. And so this is why I'm so glad that the Canadian government has started the review of the Competition Act. I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. And I hope from there that our Competition Bureau has enough information or enough power to come in and act and hopefully try to flatten out or make this space and just retail in general more fair for all of us so that we have more of a chance of local retailers or local suppliers actually building an effective business and staying alive. Thank you very much for listening. Again, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review. Uh, and then check back next time. One of the reasons why I wanted to look at industry in this report, because we're moving on to food. We're moving on to meat packers. And we're going to look at the meat packing industry and what was happening to farmers and what was happening on the retail side. So check back in a couple weeks for a discussion on meat. Take care, everyone. Companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.